Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 17 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 26th of May. And Leon, we're talking to Natty Harpaz. Natty Harpaz is the Catch Group CEO. And the Catch Group has just made an acquisition of retailer Pumpkin Patch, a children's wear retailer, which was in a lot of trouble. So he's going to be talking to us all about that acquisition. An online company thinking about bricks and mortar. And then we've got a chat with Sinclair. Sinclair Davidson's going to give us his assessment of the budget. Yeah, which he doesn't like very much. So now let's listen to Natty Harpaz. Natty, uh, tell us about the uh, catch group acquiring Pumpkin Patch. You look like you've rescued Pumpkin Patch. Uh, what are your plans? The plan is really to bring it back to the market, but learn from the you know what the previous management have done and uh, what the good things they've done and also the bad things they've done. Where can we learn? Interesting enough, we had um, you know when the story came out, there's uh, um, there's a children and mums website called Kidspot, and there's over a th- the story has over a thousand comments of customers saying how much they love the brand, but what went wrong with it? So customers are some customers complain the price was too expensive, some customers complain about quality uh, going down. So that's actually been really good for us to be able to see well what were the issues, and there's really two issues. I mean everyone loved the brand, the brand had a lot of equity. The issues are around pricing and around quality. So we're going to make sure that we're going to get pricing right and we're going to get quality up. And so if we can if we can get those two things done well, I'm very confident that this is going to be a very successful venture. The plan is essentially to put together a range that's going to launch in July of children. We are going to limit the age to um, up to eight years old. So previously, pumpkin patches to do sizes up to 14 years old, which is going to limit it to zero to eight. And that's pretty much... Um, that's pretty much it. Why zero to eight? Because that's the core DNA of where Pumpkin Patch started from, on the one hand. At the same time, um, this is a very different demographic, a four years old than a 14 years old. Uh, the size ranges are different. The taste is different. Um, it's not very cool. I don't know if you have kids in that age or you had what, but a, but a 12 years old uh, kid doesn't want to walk into a store where a three years old is getting it close. It's just not, you know, I guess uh, not cool is one way to put it. But uh, but it's different It's different segments. It's different uh, types of, you know, of stages in your life where you are buying buying the things that you wear. That and, and, and apparel is really closely linked to your identity if you think about it. You know, the clothes you wear reflects who you are to some degree. And so, and, and I think that they've gone too wide trying to capitalize the market. And we're going to try and avoid that mistake. I believe at the same time, you're looking long long-term at uh, taking it further out beyond to the teens. Is that right? No, I don't think so. So you're just going to stick to the zero to eight age bracket? Yeah, that's right. Catch Group hasn't had much experience in this area, though. I mean, You are correct. So, well, we've we had experience buying products and selling products. What we haven't had experience is designing and manufacturing. But one of the things that everyone asks me, okay, well, Amazon coming in, what do you think about Amazon? And, I, and I, one of the things that I say is that retailers need to have a unique selling proposition, something that they can have and makes them different. And I think this is one of them. If you think about it, having a, a brand that you own, that you go all the way from design to retailing, gives you a point of difference. And this is one of my strategies. If I can have some unique brands, 
that are only available on my platform, it gives you me a significant competitive advantage over any other retailer within that segment. Obviously, there are people who would prefer to buy seed or cotton on or anything else. But if you want pumpkin patch, you've got to come to us. So, Natty, you'll continue with the bricks and mortar shops and add in the the catch online marketing? Well, as you're probably aware, they've shut down all the pumpkin patch stores. So we are going to start online and then and then go into a bricks and mortar stores. A new venture for you in a sense, wouldn't you? You'd have to get into the, the big shopping mall. Well, potentially. I think um, I think the, the model of having 150 stores is not very viable moving forward. I think the model for me is having a very strong online proposition with a good supply chain, good warehousing, so you can distribute the product easily and fast. And the same time have uh, retail stores that are actually more of a marketing proposition you know having key locations in where customers want to touch and feel the, the product and have an experience is key so yes i'm very keen on doing that having physical stores but it's not a distribution game where i need 100 stores to to find every customer in every corner of the country it's more of a marketing and flagship type model and one of the challenges one i would assume is in the designing and uh, how do you intend to handle that you know there's a lot of talent out there and our job is just my job as a ceo really is to build structure and architecture i see myself as the architect of the organization i just need to find the best people i can and then I got to put the right structure in place so that then essentially I'd be able to find those people and put them in a place where they can actually perform, give them the freedom to execute on what they know best, and which is why I hire them. You know, the funniest thing is you hire people because they're best at what they do and then you don't let them do what you tell them what to do. That doesn't make any sense. So uh, my philosophy is hire the people who knows what needs to be done and let them get on with it. So I'm, I'm just about to finalize a co- a, an employment with a very senior um, children wear designer. Uh, we are hiring a, a great marketing person and a merchandise planner, and we are using some partners that specialize in sourcing and manufacturing, and they will help us find the best places to actually make the goods and make them for a very good price. Now, I mean, the, the issue of, uh, well, design and manufacturing and also, for that matter, uh, moving into a bricks-and-mortar retail space would be very much a yeah. learning experience for you, wouldn't it? Not for me, because I've, re- I've been in retail. I've run uh, lots of retail stores in the past. For Catch Group, it is. Catch Group has not had a lot of experience in in running bricks and mortar stores but again uh it's probably going to take us about a year before we open the first store first we got to go live we got to make sure that the customers like like the product that uh, we put together we got to have some learnings out of it and then once we have the learnings we can go back into okay well what have we learned can we are we confident enough uh to open a retail store what's your model going to be like you're opening the major cities first and then extend from there um well, I think it's a bit early to discuss that. I think we should probably focus more about the online, essentially to have pumpkin patch stores as a standalone. You can go pumpkinpatch.com.au or pumpkinpatch.co.nz. That's the initial plan. And then essentially after um, doing that, we will use the same stock that sits in our warehouse already for the purpose of putting it into the catch of the day website. And so essentially you'd be able to buy the product both on pumpkin patch and as well as um, catch. So, in a sense, uh, it, it's actually building on the catch business as well. Correct. And you're using the strengths of catch to uh, promote Pumpkin Patch. Um, well, it's got its own audience, which is slightly, potentially slightly different than the current audience, but we'll definitely uh, cross-promote both businesses to each other. So, we'll 
you know, the catch customer will be able to get access to the pumpkin patch stock and the pumpkin patch customer will be able to get access to a wide range of goods that are available on catch. And conversely, that also means uh, potentially it could mean a bigger market base for uh, catch. Ultimately. Oh, definitely, definitely. People cross over. Oh, of course. I mean, that's when we looked at the whole opportunity. That's exactly what we saw. We said, well, you know, so have, think about that, what catch can offer. A good distribution model. So now... I can have a pumpkin pet store, but at the same place, I can have Clark shoes and Hush Puppies shoes and Ugg boots and lots of other products that are complementary to the pumpkin patch. And that's part of the plan. So um, we are going to use, the, we are going to offer the pump patch customer very much building on the marketplace model that we have. We are going to offer them the opportunity to purchase other goods from us. So the adult buying something for their children might see something that's more suited for them on the catch side. Correct. Well, not, so depends how they, what the point of entry. I mean, the way I look at it, I'm, I'm creating an ecosystem around the catch group catch group has underpinned by catch of the day which is a one website that's got everything but then there's lots of entry points into the catch group you can enter through a pumpkin patch you can enter through grocery run you can enter through mumgo we each one of these instances will create opportunity for you to migrate from pumpkin patch into the catch uh website and that's where the ecosystem that i'm creating all of that is going to be underpinned by a um catch club membership so catch club membership is a an annual membership very similar to the amazon prime where you pay 69 dollars a year and you get free shipping so part of my vision is if you're a club catch member you can enjoy that benefit across any website you shop with us so if you shop with us on pumpkin patch or anywhere else if you if, the, if this is part of the if the brand is part of the, the catch family you enjoy that benefit and that's the that's the plan well, Natty, that sounds fantastic. Thank you very much for your time and good luck. Moving no problem. Forward. Good luck. Thank you, Liam. Forward. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Well, it's going to be interesting. He's not committed to bricks and mortar, but I think he's thinking of it. Look, I think this uh, acquisition is actually going to be quite significant. Yeah, particularly on the eve of uh, Amazon's arrival in Australia, because Catch is a very good online trader. This will be interesting to watch. Now, Sinclair and what's wrong with the budget? Sinclair Davidson, you have some views about the budget. You particularly have an interesting view about the bank levy. Tell us about it. <laughs> the, 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 the bank levy, I think, is a terrible, terrible idea. Um, the notion that you would have a uh, 0.06% levy on liabilities of the bank that are not actually covered by the guarantee seems to be, be a very strange one. And almost to the extent, I, I think almost they needed a number to fill in on the budget papers. And they said, well, where are we going to get $6 billion from? And just all of a sudden, oh, we'll just hit the banks for a sum of money. And to the extent that they won't tell us how the levy will actually work, and it doesn't seem that they have an idea of how it will actually work, but they know precisely how much money it's going to raise, which almost seems to me to be a reverse-engineered kind of number to, to fill a gap. And so I think it, it's not just policy on the run, it's it's number-making on the run almost. It, it's, it's quite a terrible idea. It's interesting because uh, the, the banks will inevitably pass it on to yes, customers of course. and shareholders. Of course. I mean, what... What politicians have been telling us for years is that we dislike the banks because they've got all this market power. Well, if you've got market power, you pass your costs on and you pass them forward. So it's straightforward going to 
come forward and impact upon the general community. Um, in the short run, the, the, the shareholders may take a hit, but certainly in the long run, the customers are going to be paying this this impost. And why would you be doing this? It, it's it's almost like the, the, the government don't think that we've been listening to them for all these years when they've been saying what's wrong with the banking system. Um, and then all of a sudden they say, oh, and by the way, they're not going to pass it on. Well, we know people pay taxes. If, if they were to start taxing farmers' cows, do they think the cows would pay the tax? Um, you know, so it, it's just a crazy, crazy idea. At the same time, uh, the, the government clearly targeted the banks because it knew the banks were not popular and uh, it felt it could do this politically. Yes, it's very much a case of what we can get away with. Now, I think when you're in the what we can get away with mode of thinking, you're actually in bad policy area almost by definition. If they came along and said, you know, we've done our very careful sums and we've worked out dead weight losses and efficiency gains and so on and so forth, and it turns out that the banks are, at this particular point, are the best people to tax, you could say, well, okay, here's an argument. But if they come along and say, well, we all hate the banks and in any event, we're very annoyed with the banks because of who they appointed as their uh, um, their, 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 their spokesperson, um, well, and therefore we're going we're gonna to tax them, you just know that they're up to no good and, and you just know that this is poor policy and when that becomes one of the headline issues of the budget you've got to start thinking well what else is dodgy what else is sloppy what else is useless and when you dig down into it there's a lot in this budget that is sloppy and useless and and not good policy well you also have some views about the rise in the medicare levy I do indeed, yes. I would actually abolish the Medicare levy, not Medicare per se, but the Medicare levy itself, because that is a, a an example of, of what economists called fiscal illusion. And the notion is that by paying one and a half or two percent, the number, um, that we are somehow paying for Medicare through the Medicare levy is actually a very, very misleading indicator. It's actually a mechanism of increasing the top marginal tax rate above what people think it is. The, the Medicare levy itself finances very little of Medicare. The other thing is the Medicare levy itself might be popular because people like the idea of earmarked taxes. But in actual fact, in Australia, earmarked taxes are unconstitutional. Um, All taxation revenue must be paid into consolidated revenue. So the notion that that this sum of money goes to this and that sum of money goes to that is actually political propaganda as opposed to fiscal reality. If we were to fully fund Medicare through the Medicare levy, the levy itself would probably have to be about 8, 9, 10% or so. lot more than it actually is. So it gives us the impression that we are getting a reasonably good medical system on the cheap, where in actual fact, we're getting a reasonably good medical ex- system on the expensive. So it actually disguises the true cost of the Medicare system to Australians. So I would actually just abolish it. I would put up the top marginal tax bracket by the 2% or whatever it is, and actually be honest with people and saying, you are paying 49% or you are paying 48% or you are paying 34%, whichever tax bracket you're in, add the 2% to that and say to people, this is what you're paying. But uh, you're, you're saying the 1.5% doesn't cover Medicare, the cost of Medicare now? No, no, it, it doesn't cost, and, and it probably never did. Um, our, our medical uh, system is, is a lot more expensive than people think. They think, oh, it's only 1% or 2%. Well, you know, it's, it's a bargain. Well, actually, no, it isn't. It's, it, it's, it's, it's costing us a lot more than that. And, and, we, and we should be upfront with people. This is what a, a government program costs, and if it's worth having, we will pay for it. Um, not so to people, well, it's actually a lot cheaper than you think. It, 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 it isn't. What are the other issues you have with this budget? Um, I think some of the growth rates, the forecast rates, the, the wage growth rates. I mean, we, we, we saw it, it, the ABS data came out 
what the next day or a couple of days afterwards saying wages were growing at 1.2%, I think it was. 1.9%. with inflation or going at 2.1%. So actually people are going backwards. Um, no wonder the population are grumpy. Um, so, 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 so wage growth is, is, is pretty low and the government are assuming it's going to be pretty high. Um, now that basically means that the single largest source of revenue to the government, which is the personal income tax, is overestimated to, to, just for a start. Growth rates are, are overestimated. So the these numbers are, are strange. Uh, the second largest source of government revenue is the company income tax. Um, that number seems to be quite large compared to recent historical trends. So. I would suggest to you that um, the, the, the government have been very optimistic in their revenue forecasts, which of course means that um, we are not probably going to be hitting our uh, our surplus in 2021. Um, debt is going to continue to rise. It is continuing to rise, of course, in the meantime, because we are still running quite large deficits. Um, and I, I think that this idea of massive increases in spending, which are going to be matched by massive increases in taxation, uh, means that we're going to be balancing our budget at some point in the future at a much higher level of GDP than we have in the past, which of course does have costs associated with it. And these costs need to be fully articulated and explained to the population. So the forecasts are just wrong. Yes, I think they are wrong again. There used to be a time when they were sort of a bit pessimistic and then the government would over-deliver. I think what's happening now is that they're a little bit too optimistic and government budgets are going to under-deliver. So um, I, I think we need to look at, at this budget with, with a great deal of cynicism and expect uh, much higher levels of debt and deficit going forward. What would you have wanted from this government? To deliver in the budget, what would you have expected? I I would have said things along the lines of we need to start be tightening our belts. It it may well be true that we can't cut taxes right now because the budget is in deficit, but I would certainly look for for spending restraints. I would not be fully funding things such as Gonski. I would not be funding things such as the NDIS. Um, now that may sound terrible, but a lot of the NDIS is actually an industry policy in disguise. Um, it's not that we're taking money away from. Uh, uh, disabled people. In actual fact, the government already spends a lot of money on disability. So I, I would strip out things that we currently can't afford and drive the budget back into surplus or at least into a balanced state, stop the debt from, from growing and from a position of fiscal strength then decide what we are going to spend money on and not spend money on, as opposed to in a position of fiscal weakness, actually expand spending. Um, these are, are not good decisions. Um, at the same time, I would be cutting back on things such as the submarines in, in South Australia. Um, I would be putting strong uh, spending curbs on, on almost every level of government, looking at things that we could actually stop spending on at you know incompletely, bearing in mind that the Commonwealth government very often spends money on things that the state governments are supposed to be spending money on. So the those are issues to be looking at. I wouldn't be picking fights with the education system. The universities can really look after themselves. That's not a real problem. But I think the independent and, and Catholic school sectors, uh, they've picked an unnecessary fight with them. And that fight's going to bite them. And so how much scope is there for spending restraint? Well, I think we have now got spending at above 25% of GDP. Um, Lord Keynes very famously said that when the economy grows, well, when government share of the economy grows above 25%, we can expect trouble. Um, I would be pushing that that number below 25%. Certainly when revenues are about 23%, uh, you need to be looking at cutting out 2% uh, uh, spending. Now, that is a fair sum of money, but even if you restrain, I mean, if you if you restrain the the rate of growth in spending to 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 a smaller number, 
that would be a a, a start. I, I don't think that this government have really grasped the nettle of, of, of spending restraint as, as much as they could have. Certainly, it doesn't match their rhetoric. And uh, meanwhile, debt continues to increase. Debt continues to increase, yes. it's uh, um, the, the, the face value, they're putting it above uh, uh, $500 billion. Um, that, that's in the latest budget. And of course, that will continue to grow until the deficit is actually reduced to zero. So uh, debt is still massively expanding. And uh, there's absolutely... No prospect, you would say, of us hitting surplus in 2020-21? I would be very, very surprised. Um, I've been saying this for a long time. I don't believe it can be done. And yet the government still seems to be making up numbers, pulling out stories, convincing people and convincing themselves that it can be done. Um, I'm just wondering in in the next couple of years when, when the magic day rolls around, if like Mr. Swan, the, the treasurer will stand up and say the four budgets, I, uh, the four surpluses I announced this year, um, he ended up looking quite bad out of that. And um, I, I think the... The, the, the government should actually be more honest in its budgeting and actually say we are we, we have got no prospect of hitting this while we continue to spend. Now, it may well be the population doesn't want a surplus, um, but don't keep promising a surplus and then don't deliver it. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? I think the budget has a lot of issues. Interesting take on uh, the bank levy and the Medicare levy. And uh, I guess we'll see in the end if it's any good. Now the news. What do you have in your bin today? Well, Gary, there are two things that will be shaping the market. First is the US Fed has signalled in the minutes of its meeting that a rate hike in June is likely. And so the market will be absorbing that. And secondly, ratings agency Moody's has cut China's debt for the first time since 1989, trimming it to A1 from AA3. Moody's said a material rise in economy-wide debt was likely, and that would place a burden on the state's finance. According to Bloomberg Intelligence, China's total outstanding credit was sitting at 260% of GDP by the end of 2016. That's a massive hike from the 160% in 2008. And the downgrade comes at a time when President Xi Jinping is trying to cut China's debt levels while keeping its GDP on a growth path of 6.5%. And this will affect markets too. Indeed. Well, the Chinese have already said it's all a plot. Uh, They don't like Moody's because of it. And uh, they say Moody's doesn't understand the Chinese economy. Well, the Australian dollar fell yesterday as a result. And this will affect the Australian market very much because Australia, of course, China is our biggest trading partner. To the US and uh, US President Donald Trump is looking to cut US debt by selling off half of America's emergency oil stockpile and the entire backup gasoline supply. His budget proposal seeks to raise $500 million in fiscal 2018 by drawing down America's strategic petroleum reserve. All up, it's looking to raise as much as $16.6 billion over the next decade. The plan will also allow drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and it will stop sharing oil royalties with states along the Gulf of Mexico. Government-owned electricity transmission lines in the West will be sold off. Like much of Trump's budget, which seeks huge cuts to science and medical research and disease prevention and slashes safety net programs that affect up to a fifth of Americans, it's likely to face strong opposition in Congress. The GOP has already indicated, Gary, that they're going to do what they want. This is what the Republican leaders in Congress are doing, and uh, they're going to ignore the budget. Writing in the Washington Post, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers said the budget had, quote, the logical error of the kind that would justify failing a student in an introductory econ- economics course. And I'm quoting him here. He says, apparently the budget forecasts that U.S. economic growth will rise to 3% because of the administration's policy, largely its tax cuts and perhaps also its regulatory policies. Fair enough, 
if you believe in tooth fairies and ludicrous supply-side economics. That's right. And the economist in Britain is of civil mind and says the Trump's budget is irrelevant because he can't make it. He can only propose it and Congress will tell him whether he can do it or not. He just get won't get up. And of course, releasing all that oil onto an oversupplied market would drive down prices. Dollar a litre petrol. You just watch. Recipe for disaster. Now, Australia's big four banks have given their estimates of how much the government's levy will cost them as they stepped up their campaign this week and vowed to pass on the charges. The banks all detailed the costs on the same day in statements to the market, suggesting the campaign was now underway. Westpac has told the shareholders that the government's bank levy will slap a $260 million cost on its bottom line. The bank estimates a tax will cost Westpac approximately $370 million per annum, with an after-tax impact of $260 million per year. In a letter to its shareholders, Westpac chairman Lindsay Maxis said the tax would have a potential impact on dividends. He said it would be equivalent to $0.08 cents per share. That would amount to 4.3% of its last full-year dividend of $1.88. And uh, Mr. Maxis said uh, Westpac had not made yet made a decision on how it would respond to the levy. ANZ said it would cost the bank approximately $345 million before tax and $420 million after tax. The bank said its ability to maintain a fully frank dividend will depend on business performance and decisions in response to the tax. The Commonwealth Bank, it estimated it would cost $315 million and $220 million after tax. And the National Australian Bank, it estimated a $350 million cost annually or $245 million after tax. It's interesting that the most profitable bank, the CBA, uh, is estimating the smallest levy cost. So I think they're making figures up. Although it's interesting because the numbers that the tax, the banks are saying, don't add up to the $1.6 billion that was forecast in the budget. No, true. They don't. They don't. So the Labor Party has indicated it will pass the bank levy legislation through the Senate despite its misgivings about the revenue. And that's despite also a poll showing that four in five Australians expect the banks will pass the extra costs on to customers and concerns that the tax won't raise the $1.6 billion projected in the budget. And their estimates it could fall short by up to $500 million a year. The big four banks in their statements to the market have estimated, as I said, they'll pay combined $1.38 billion before tax and $965 million after tax. That's well short of one. Billion. The fifth bank, Macquarie, has yet to make a statement to the market, but the market expects that will come in at about $100 million, taking the total payout of the banks to about $1 billion. The Greens have also raised concerns about the revenue shortfall, and they flagged an amendment to the legislation placing a floor under the levy to lock in the projected revenue. Still, Gary, regardless of the concerns about the revenue and whatever happens with that amendment, the legislation will pass the Senate in June, and that will ensure the tax comes into force in July. And the Treasurer Scott Morrison conceded the $1.2 billion was on a gross cash basis, and the $1.6 billion estimate was actually an accrual figure. Well, that's right. And perhaps the banks ought to say how much they're going to contribute extra to um, helping our uh, deficit. The levy would actually need to be higher for that to uh, do anything. Yeah, so do we assume then that the banks don't want to join the rest of the taxpaying public and paying a bit more? Let's just watch that space and see if the government puts any more pressure on them. Now, ratings agency S&P Global has lowered the ratings of 23 financial institutions, citing the risk of a sharp slowdown in property prices. This has seen ratings for institutions including AMP, Bank of Queensland and Bendigo and Adelaide Bank lowered. It has cut AMP from A plus with a negative outlook to A with a stable outlook. Bank of Queensland from A minus with a negative outlook to triple B plus with a stable outlook. And Bendigo Adelaide Bank 
from A- minus with a negative outlook to triple B plus with a stable outlook. However, its ratings for the four banks and Macquarie remain unchanged, reflecting its, uh, in their words, expectation of likely timely financial support from the Australian government if needed. So they're expecting the Australian government to bail them out. Also, the lower rating could mean it's going to cost them more to borrow money. The, the Their concern, of course, is about the housing market. And I have to say, though, Gary, that the Australian mortgage bond market is hot despite warnings from regulators and ratings agencies about risks from the nation's housing market. Data compiled by Bloomberg shows that new residential mortgage-backed securities issuances has more than so doubled so far this year to $10.5 billion from $5.1 billion a year ago. And it's only May. And most of the sales are coming from non-bank lenders, which have less capital and fewer funding options compared with major Australian banks. Riskier borrowers are more likely to turn to non-bank lenders. Australians are snapping up mortgage bond securities at a time when private debt has skyrocketed rocketed to an average 189% of annual household income, and that makes Australian households the most indebted in the world. It also comes at a time when the Reserve Bank of Australia has expressed concern about the housing market and rising debt levels, and Treasurer Scott Morrison has given regulators more power to place controls on non-bank lenders. It's all a bit fragile, isn't it? At the same time, Gary, a slowdown in residential construction has dragged down the total value of residential building and engineering work by worse than expected 0.7%, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. A Bloomberg survey of economists had forecast a drop of 0.5% and the 4.7% decline in residential construction resulted in the greatest quarter-on-quarter decline since December 2000. And all up, the value of construction was down by unexpected 7.2% in the first quarter. That's the worst fall in 16 years. Hold on to your hat. I think it's going to continue. On other pieces of news, um, after weeks on the slide, Australian consumer confidence has picked up, rising a modest 1.7% on the ANZ Roy Moore Consumer Confidence Index, and the rise has taken the index to 110.5, which is somewhat below its long-term average, which means it's still low. And household views towards consumer finances a year ago slipped 0.8%, bringing the index to its lowest value since August 2014. And I think that's something to do with the uh, wage rate, low wages. And at the same time, a downer, is giving spotless shareholders more time to consider its takeover. It's extended the uh, $1.15 per share offer by two weeks to 7 p.m. Wednesday, 14th of June, and it stressed its offer is final in the absence of a superior offer. Now, Spotless has told investors to reject the offer, describing it as opportunistic and time to take advantage of the historical Spotless share price low, and that it was hostile, highly conditional, and not certain to proceed. Now, so far, Gary, very few Spotless shareholders have accepted the takeover bid to date. And the extra two weeks on the Deadline, I think, is all part of the pressure that Downer is trying to put on Spotless because it's waiting a decision from the takeover panel on its bid, and it wants the takeovers panel to order Spotless to release an additional target statement on its $1.2 billion takeover, claiming the initial statement has, in their words, information deficiencies. So it's all getting pretty rough in there, isn't it? That's right. Well, it's all a big mind game, Gary. And finally, Gary, Adani has deferred its decision to build its controversial mine in the wake of wrangling in the Queensland government over its royalty regime. With the state government divided over the $16.5 billion project to create jobs but leave environmental costs with greater greenhouse gas emissions, Adani told the media the decision to go ahead with the mine had been put on hold. Now, Queensland's cabinet delayed making a decision over the royalty regime the mine would operate under, and the issue has in effect been put on hold before next month's state budget. And as a result, a spokesman for Adani told AAP the company had deferred its final investment decisions, which is due next Monday, until cabinet makes a decision. Now, one proposal would have put Adani on a royalty holiday that would have allowed it to pay a low royalty rate 
rate in the early days of the mine and the amount would have increased over the life of the mine when the financial pressures were eased until the full money was paid. And this so-called secret deal in effect would have seen Adani paying only $2 million in royalty annually, costing taxpayers $320 million in lost royalties. Now that was rejected by Labor's left, claiming it broke an election promise not to spend taxpayer money on the Adani project. Now Premier Anastasia Palachik, who's with Labor's right faction, conceded the matter had not gone to Cabinet, with the Deputy Jackie Trad, a member of the left, and Rhodes Minister Mark Bailey, also a member of the left, posing the deal. So it looks like that might not get up. It might not, and in any event, claims that it's going to create thousands of jobs or a load of rubbish, maybe in the development period, but that's going to be an almost totally automatic robotic mine. Well, the issue too is that they are they have also applied for government loan yep, to build one. a railway line when other miners are not using their own money to build to build railway lines. It's all bad news, the whole thing. I can't see Adani going ahead, Gary. There are many more jobs supported by the reef and the reef could be damaged. And the reef and the reef is uh, Australia's greatest tourist drawcard. And that's it for this week, Gary. Next week, we've got Bill Orlett, the Managing Director of the Martin Trust Centre for MIT Entrepreneurship. That's it for us this week. We look forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at Talking Biz, B-R-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Talk to you next week.